join me there in Matthew 23. Thank you, worship team. I don't know about you guys. Uh, I feel like I kind of needed that music, especially today. Uh, Sensing a little bit of what Mike was alluding to in his opening, though I'm on the front row and not fully aware of what's going on behind me, you can kind of sense the room. I think uh, we're a little hungover from an extra hour of sleep. (laughs) <laughs> that would be bad. You know, it's the one in the spring that's supposed to have us coming in here all bleary-eyed, bleary-eyed where we lose an hour. Uh, maybe we're a little drunk on an extra hour of sleep. But uh, thank you, worship team. Matthew 23. Uh, in a few minutes, we'll read our text. Uh, this is a difficult chapter that we're getting ready to launch into. Um, and I'll go ahead and be a little transparent with you. Something has has been coming on the horizon that I hear from time to time some of our folks are excited about. I'm very nervous about it. I'm quite nervous about it. Uh, And that's chapter 24 is coming, chapter 24 and 25. And some of y'all are like, yeah, we're going to talk about the end times. And like, yeah, I've got to get up and preach about the end times. And there's all these different ideas and opinions on that. And we'll be very gracious. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know where I'm going to fall on that. I've never preached through Matthew 24, and I just want to take it as it comes. But in the meantime, between that and where we're at now is a chapter that is probably the most vehement, blistering chapter of confrontation that there is in the Bible. And Jesus is doing the talking uh, I mean, he doesn't hold back. He is going to start next week, Lord willing, start next week, verse 13 perhaps. He is really going to let uh, the scribes and Pharisees know where they stand. And uh, he'll hold no punches. Uh, before that, he's actually going to address the crowds and his disciples about the scribes and Pharisees. So first, they have to hear themselves being, so it's not slander. The Lord's not slandering the scribes and Pharisees. Oh, they're right there to hear what Jesus is saying. And then he's going to direct his comments to them. These are connected. I do know this much. Judgment is going to come on the nation of Israel in their near future back then. And yet it is still yet to come in the future from us still. We'll see some of that, I'm sure, as we get into chapter 24 and 25. Part of the reason for that is what we're going to touch on in verse 23. Their leadership had allowed the nation to get in such a bad situation spiritually. Let this sink in. God himself had lived among them for about 33 years and had ministered openly among them. God himself ministered openly among them for three years. And not only had they not prepared the people to recognize that that man is also God, they not only don't recognize him, but they intentionally fight against that. And they convince the people to reject and even kill God in the flesh. This is how bad things are. And so the Lord's going to pin a lot of that on their leadership. And so in a few moments, we'll read verses 1 through 12. That's what we want to deal with this morning. Very quickly by way of review. Y'all help me out. In the Passion Week, what day are we still on? Day three, right? This third day is in the temple. It's been a long day, and we're far from over. Got a long way to go on this day for the Lord. Uh, They've confronted him. His enemies have confronted him about, by what authority do you do this? He tells three parables. Parable about two sons. A parable about some 
tenants of a vineyard who are very wicked and end up killing the owner of the vineyard's son and want to keep all the fruit for themselves, just stealing and robbing. And then he tells about a wedding feast and how those that were invited said, yes, we're going to come to the wedding feast, but when the wedding feast is ready, then they don't actually go. And all of these in one way or another are pointed back at the leadership of Israel. Then after that, the Pharisees, one of the sets of enemies, came to Christ and wanted to know, should the Jews pay their taxes to Rome? He answers that question. Then the Sadducees take a run at him, and they take a shot at at the resurrection and try to belittle and undermine the doctrine of the resurrection. Jesus defeats them. Then they come up, and a Pharisee, a lawyer, wants to know, what is the absolute most important, greatest of all the commandments in the Old Testament? Jesus answers that. As we saw last week, Having finished their questions and now they're silent, the Lord asked them a question and he says, who is the Christ? Tell me what, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is the Christ? They say, it's David's son. And he asked a very thought-provoking and purposeful question. If David's descendant is the Messiah Christ, then why does David in Psalm 110 verse 1 call this descendant of his, his Lord, his Adonai? Why does he, inspired by the Holy Spirit, write down that Yahweh, the I am God, calls David's Lord Adonai? Why does he call him that? And this is the same person that's going to be a physical descendant of David. Why would David call his physical descendant his Lord? They have no answer. And that brings us up to chapter 23. So the setting is still in the temple. The third day of the Passion Week. Jesus has been teaching and lots of confrontation. And now the confrontation continues. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds, so there's three groups here. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, his disciples are smattered in among the crowds. Here's what he says. Picture it. Picture maybe the Pharisees together and the Lord's addressing the crowds with his disciples in it. Verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees You almost picture him almost pointing over here. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. Now, some of you are already like, wait, what? I thought you just said Jesus is going to like blister these guys. Well, hang on. This is where it starts. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. But not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens. Let that sink in. Jesus saying of the scribes and Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make, and he gives several examples. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. He's talking about their clothing. And they love the place of honor at feasts. Boy, they just love a good banquet where there's a special seat designated for them. Did you hear? So-and-so is going to be here. Yes, I'll come. I'll swing by. Oh, we're going to have a special. They love that. 
They loved the, the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Love the best seats in the synagogues. And that's not all they love, greetings in the marketplace. They love when they're out in public, moving among the people, and the whispers begin. And people come up, aren't you? Is it, aren't you the, I certainly am. They love it, man. They, oh, that, that just makes their whole day. Verse 7, they love the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Aren't you rabbi, so-and-so? Could you say it again? I just, I just like the sound of that. It's just music to my ears. But remember who Jesus is talking to, the crowds and his disciples. Verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you there's a two-part reason. You're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. You are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth. Why do we not call anyone our father on earth? For you have one father who is in heaven. Neither, verse 3, again, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. I want you to hear that. Is that a command? Who's the greatest? Uh, well, these are. Hey, you're the greatest. You need to be servants. I don't know that it's a command. I think it's a clue. I think this is a clue. Verse, verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And in verse 12 and 13, I'll, I'll, verse 12, I'll say it again at the end. A very fearful verse. And frankly, an exciting verse. Hear the word of God. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Note the passive tense when we get there in a few minutes. Well, more than a few minutes. A little while. A little while from now. Let's notice four things this morning. Now, not our usual three, not two. We've had that recently. We've got four things. Three of them have to do. And by the way, just by the nature of this, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, get prepared. This is going to be a negative type of message. The Lord's, this is some negative sayings that are all through this chapter, and that's what we have to deal with it. So it's probably not going to be a great feel-good message. This is going to be something for us to see what our Lord says about the perverted leadership of Israel. And we all along the way need to make sure that we're not like that. That we're not like that in whatever area of leadership the Lord gives us. That we're not like that in any way in our lives as a whole. So number one, would you notice with me verses one or verses two and three. Israel's leaders were hypocrites. Here's the problem. Why is judgment coming? Because they're going to end up crucifying their Lord. And they're going to end up continuously rejecting the Messiah that God has sent them. Part of the problem is that their leaders were hypocrites. Notice verse 2, and I'm going to try not to bog down here. I'm watching my time already. My opening paragraph is, is where I could get the most lost. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. What's going on here? All right, how does this happen that the scribes and the Pharisees are said, be, being said to sit on Moses' seat? So if we're doing our little timeline, going from the past to where they're at to the future, let's say that they're somewhere around here. This is the life of Christ. Here's what I want you to do. Back up four or 500, about 450, 500 years. Go back 450, 500 B.C., something is happening. The people of Israel are coming back to the land. 
because they've been in the, in the Babylonian exile. So now God has worked it out. They've been punished. They've been judged. They were idolatrous. They're not idolatrous anymore. They've been polytheistic. Man, they've been cured of polytheism. And they're starting to come back to the land of Israel. Several things began to happen. Nehemiah helps them rebuild the wall. Ezra and, and Zerubbabel, they help rebuild the temple. But then Ezra, who's called Ezra the scribe, reads the law of God. Okay? And by the way, what I'm talking about here, we're getting ready to go into those 400 silent years, the intertestamental period, where we don't know a whole lot. Like, I'm going to just tell you, we don't know all the details about how it gets to verse 2. How does it get to verse 2 where the Lord says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat? How did that happen? We don't know all the details. But around 450 or 500 BC, Ezra reads the law, and that sparks a revival, a renewed zeal for God, a renewed zeal for the Word of God and the law of God. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing. But then you move into a period where there are no prophets. And again, this intertestamental period. And so more scribes, scribes being the idea, not how it was used in the early part of the Old Testament where a king would have a scribe who took notes for him. These are the teachers of the law. So the scribes, as it moved into that intertestamental period, more than ever, not only did what Ezra did in teaching the law of God, they started adding to the law by their rules and regulations. We've talked a lot about this. Here's the law of God. They would teach that. But then they almost feel like these principles are not clear enough. We need to make rules and regulations based on these laws. And they started teaching those and writing volumes and volumes of books. In the intertestamental period, these things called synagogues start coming into play. And the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees start dominating these seats of teaching. So that almost without being appointed specifically in the Old Testament by God, the scribes who would be predominantly Pharisees, I'll talk about that in a second, they start dominating these seats of teaching. In fact, the New American Standard and several other translations translate verse 2 this way. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in, on the seat of Moses. They've seated themselves on Moses' seat. In other words, they've just taken it upon themselves. We are going to be the teachers of the law of Moses. Problem, they're also adding all these traditions. And they're putting the traditions on the same level with the Word of God. Now, a second thing starts happening. The Greeks come into power, and then I'm, I'm, covering, I'm covering hundreds of years here. The Greeks come into power. Alexander the Great is killed. His kingdom is divided among his four generals, and then they die, and they pass it on and on. So there's a Greek. Greeks have the influence over Palestine. And then this man named Antiochus, I always thought it was Epiphanes. I pulled it up on, on the internet today, and they say it should be pronounced Epiphanes, right? Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Epiphanes. Somewhere around 167, remember, we're counting down as we get closer to the time of Christ. Around 167 B.C., he goes in and desecrates the temple by offering a swine. These guys named the Maccabeans lead a revolt against this Greek influence of this wicked Greek culture coming into Israel. They'll have no part of it, and they start a war, and that they're winning that war, and repurifying the temple is what the Jews celebrate at Hanukkah in December, right? All of that has taken place, and coming out of that, there's this new group of people called the Pharisees, which means to separate, to separate from that group. The Pharisees come along, and they are extremely zealous for the law of God, but also for the tradition, the law and the traditions. 
And the Pharisees start dominating the positions of the scribal teachers. So scribes are the teachers of the law. I told you I was going to go long there, right? That's my one. This is discouraging as I'm looking at my time. Because anyway, I felt like we need to get that. Look at verse 2 again. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. It's almost as though the Lord is saying, hey, crowds, my followers, it is not ideal, but here's the fact. They are the teachers you have. They are the ones that are teaching in the schools and in the synagogues and at the temple. Therefore, the idea based on that, because they're the teach, they're very imperfect and they're twisted, but they also do some things that are right. And with that in mind, Jesus says, so because they've taken it upon themselves, no one else has taken this role. Yes, they overemphasize that and they underemphasize the law, but yet, verse 2, so do and observe whatever they tell you. What, write this note. Verse 3 is a a command, verse 3, to the people and the followers of the Lord is a command to obey the scribes when they teach the law of Moses. The idea here is when they teach it properly, when they are accurately teaching the law of Moses, you need to obey what they say to do even if you do not like them. But it goes further than that. Verse 3 is not an endorsement of the scribes and the Pharisees' teaching of extra traditions and additions in rules and regulations on top of Moses' law. So it is a command to obey when they teach the law properly. It is not a command to obey when they teach the traditions. How do we know this? Because Jesus intentionally broke their traditions. The biggest law that they had the most tradition about was the Sabbath. And Jesus, in their minds, broke the Sabbath on multiple occasions. And he didn't worry about that. So he's not telling his followers, everything they say about all the different rules and regulations and traditions, you have to obey all of that. No, he's saying, as they sit on the seat of Moses. When they teach, teachers in that day would have a seated position. And these Pharisees and scribes have taken the authoritative position. And they dominate in the synagogues. Now, again, verse 3 is a little bit tricky as well. Here's why. Watch it. Scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They preach but do not practice. So this is difficult. Here's why. The Pharisees were much more popular and respected than the Sadducees. Sadducees are political. The Pharisees are the religious leaders, and that's why Jesus expects more of them than he does the Sadducees. The Lord is going to say these negative things about the Pharisees. He's saying, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Notice again, verse two, verse 3. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. Here's the problem with that. Here's the struggle. Why are the Pharisees so respected? Because they're known to be, they are known to be very pious, zealous, and sincere. There's some really good people, where, so we don't want to paint with this totally broad brush that all Pharisees were awful people. Nicodemus is in heaven. Gamaliel seems to be a very fair-minded man who, who knew the law and taught the law. So there's some really good things about them. And what's the struggle here is they, they're known to be sincere. Again, pious, zealous, going the extra mile, living totally separated lives, and everyone would know they were told. So what is the Lord doing? Some have said he's just simply using irony here. 
All I can walk away with is it seems to me that the Lord knows that among them, there are some who are blatant, among the 6,000 Pharisees, some are blatant hypocrites. But as Lord, I believe what he's saying here is, as Lord, as God, who knows the hearts and lives of all people, he knows that in their private life, they don't even come close to living up to the demands that they put on other people. And he's going to allude to that in a moment. And so they are hypocrites. They're hypocritical in what they do. And the Lord is hitting this. J.C. Ryle words it this way. While their office was respected, their bad lives were not to be copied. So the Lord, knowing the bad life behind their public life, he's saying, don't, you think you know what they are, but you don't. Don't live how they live all the time. There's more to them than what you see publicly. They're not living up to their own expectations and preaching. Real quick, and I'll be done in a moment on the first point. Ladies and gentlemen, it is sometimes necessary for us to obey what our earthly authorities tell us to do because they are in a position. Their position is a position of authority that God has appointed, and we must obey what they say, but we may not do what they do. And that happens all the time. You say, Jeff, what's an example? Corrupt politicians do what they say. Well, they don't do it. They don't do it. They say that for us, and they're, I know. Obey what they say. Sinful parents. Poor young person has very sinful parents. They give them instructions and orders. you got to obey your parents in the Lord, for it's right. You obey as to the Lord. Sometimes you have a supervisor down at work. He doesn't do a lick of work, but he tells everybody else what to do. Do what he says. Don't do what he, don't do what he does. Because you know if everybody does what he does, the company's going to go bankrupt. But he's in the position of authority. God's allowed that to happen. Your job is obey what is said to do as long as it's in the guidelines of the business. And, of course, another big one that I want to touch on as we finish this first point, that's Jesus' point here. Religious leaders, ungodly religious leaders who are one thing in public and something totally different in private. What the Lord says in this case is, yeah, you do what they say that is right in line with the Word of God, but don't live how they live. You say, Jeff, well, I'm glad this doesn't happen anymore in our day and time. Hey, guys, America is absolutely filled with religious leaders and church leaders who have a very different private life than they do in public. We could have a very long list, I thought, of six or seven. This really is happening. You say, Jeff, you think this happened in South Carolina? Guys, this is happening in Anderson. You say, who? I really don't know. I don't know. God knows this is happening. There are some religious leaders who exhort their people to have private times of prayer and Bible reading. And they don't. They don't. Their only time in Bible reading is to get ready for sermons. They do not have private time. They're telling you to do it, but they don't do it. There are religious leaders in Anderson County who are telling other people you ought to give financially to the Lord, and they don't. Bless the heart of their poor secretaries and treasurers who have to live with this knowledge. It's sad. There are preachers who, this is happening in Anderson. I don't know a specific. I'll promise you it's happening. There are preachers who preach about purity and right moral living. But their phone and their computer shows that they're addicted to pornography. And if you were to follow them for a month, you'd find out they're having extramarital affairs. This really is taking place. There are preachers who tell their people you ought to trust God. When life gets tough, trust the Lord. Cast your cares upon Him. They run to a bottle of alcohol themselves. 
this really happens in Anderson County. There are preachers who preach integrity, but they are embezzling money out of the church, and they're taking advantage of widows for personal financial gain. This really happens. There are preachers who talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, but their ministry is performed in the power of the flesh. There are preachers who talk about loving God, but they cannot honestly say they've had a face-to-face with God where they've loved on the Lord and worshipped Him. It's been weeks, if not months, since they have actually done that. Hey, guys, listen. Bible knowledge is awesome. It is great. Talent is fine. Charisma surely can be useful. But there's a lot to be said for just private integrity. Private integrity. And you won't know. Pray for God to give you discernment in that. No one is perfect. We all fail. We all fail. But these blatant things where they preach and do not do, the Lord says, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Number two this morning, out of verse number four, let's notice Israel's leaders were loveless. Israel's leaders were loveless. You almost think, well, Jeff, isn't this the same thing as verse three? It no doubt flows from verse 3, but I'm separating it slightly because of a unique part to it. Notice verse 4. So they preach, do not do. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens. So the leaders are loveless. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What's happening? I'm going to borrow from MacArthur because he kind of puts... In, in word form, what we are picturing, okay? He writes the following. He says, what's happening here in verse 4 reflected their common custom back at their time period, and also you'll see this still in like third world countries, second world countries. He writes the following. It's the custom of this, quote, of loading up a donkey, camel, picture it, loading up a donkey, camel, or other beast of burden to the point where it can hardly move. You ever seen that? You got this burrow, this donkey, and I mean, it's just like way out to the side and way up and like all over. And these people are like, I I think there's a spot up there. If you give me a boost, we can tie one more thing right up there. Or they hook them to this this carriage that they're they're attached to or this cart, and they just keep weighing it and weighing it and weighing it. Now, he continues. He says, so the animal can hardly move. He writes, as they travel down the road, the owner would walk alongside, here's the key, carrying nothing himself berating and beating the animal if it happened to stumble or balk. If it stumbles or balk, it starts yelling at it and hitting the animal, but they're the ones that's overloaded the animal. So what's Jesus' point here? This is twofold, watch. The first one is kind of a continuation of what was talked about in the first point. The scribes and the Pharisees taught their people, watch, the way to have a relationship with God is you better keep the law. You better keep all the law. How many laws were in the law of Moses? We talked about a few few weeks ago. How many? 613. 248 do's, 365 don'ts. Hear that again. You keep the 613 laws and you can have a close relationship with God. Hey guys, no one can bear the weight of that. No one can bear the weight of that. We all crumble. We're crumbled by that. We're just crushed. We can't do that. Only one person, that's the Lord Jesus, ever kept it. But they don't stop there because as we've already pointed out, they take those 613 laws and now they write volumes and volumes of books 
on more rules and regulations and expect the people to constantly be learning the new rules and regulations and the old rules and regulations and be aware of the, of the volume and put all this in your life. In other words, they, it is nothing for them to just keep adding on expectations and bruising the consciences of their followers, just crushing them down. Never using the law as like, did you try to keep those 613 commandments? Yeah, I'm not doing so well, Rabbi. Well, guess what? None of us can. That's why we need grace. And that's why you need to ask God to forgive you of your sins and trust him. They don't do that. They just keep mounting more and more rules and regulations. So then the second part of verse 4 that I think to, to do it justice, we have to present this thought. Look at it again because this isn't so obvious, but I think it is the real meaning of verse 4. Watch it one more time. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. If you're taking notes, write this thought. That last phrase, they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger, that does not mean that the scribes and Pharisees were unwilling to obey their own religion. It doesn't mean they're unwilling. You could almost scrap the word obey. We could almost say it doesn't mean that they were unwilling to even attempt to obey their own religion. That's not what that not lifting a finger means. What it actually means is they were not willing to help other people succeed in bearing that weight. In other words, they keep mounting all these laws and rules and regulations, traditions and additions, just more and more and more to keep and keep, never ending. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're not trying to do it themselves, at least publicly. It means that they don't, they don't help their people Try to succeed at doing that. Why not? Now watch, this is key. I'm getting ready to give a, a quote. I'm going to borrow from someone. And he's going to have some heavy parts to it. But it's a really good quote. There are two reasons why these leaders of Israel did not move a finger to help people carry this heavy burden. One is they don't want to help them carry the burden. And number two, they don't know how to help them. Did you catch what I just said? They don't want to help them, and they don't know how to help them. So we're going to borrow from Piper. It's a lengthy quote. You'll have time in a moment. I know you see it coming. I don't want you to worry about writing the note just yet. Just hear it. He covers those two reasons. In fact, I borrowed them from him. He offers two reasons. Why, verse 4, why do they not lift the finger to help? He begins. You ready? 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 Quote. The proud do not really want others to advance beyond them. They don't want others to advance beyond them. Why? That would mean losing one of their reasons for feeling superior. So they don't lift a finger. They just keep adding more and more for you and I to carry, trying to have this relationship with God, and we just keep failing and failing. They don't help because they don't want you to have, they don't want you to advance beyond them because that makes them lose one of their reasons for feeling superior. The second one, I want you to hear it first, and then you'll write it. You ready? He says, the other reason is that the proud do not understand the way that God's grace really works to help sinners make progress in holiness without getting proud. you got to hear it again. I'm going to read it quicker. You ready? The other reason, verse 4, is that the proud do not understand the way that God's grace really works to help sinners make progress in holiness without getting proud. They don't understand how to do that. I know you're writing, but as you're writing, I want you to listen at the same time. So write those words, go back and study that quote, because there's a lot of truth there. 
But here's a thought. Grace, so notice he's writing, they don't understand how God's grace really works. What the way that God's grace. Part of grace is this. I get forgiveness of my sins. Part of grace is I get this relationship with God. In grace, I don't go to hell. In grace, I get to go to heaven. But guys, there's a whole other, this is important, there's a whole other part of grace, which is part of salvation. Grace means a gift, and it's where God gives us, his people, an enablement. An enablement to actually live godly lives that wasn't there before. In other words, before we're saved, we try to do better and try to do better, but we can't. And then we actually get saved, and all of a sudden, we do start living a more godly, holy life. What has happened? My mind, when I read this quote, immediately goes to Romans chapter. Anybody want to guess what chapter? Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, when, the, when Paul wrote and says, God has done what the law could not do, in that he sent his son to die on the cross to take away our sin. And then what's the key, what's the key part of grace that actually helps a person see improvements and advance, move forward in holiness in a way that you cannot get proud about it? What is the key? Person. Romans chapter, the Holy Spirit. So, read that quote again. The reason the proud do not understand the way is, the reason they do this is the proud do not understand the way that God's grace really works to help sinners make progress in holiness without getting proud. When we realize that I can't do any better than I did before, but God's Holy Spirit in me, when I learn about His power and I rely upon His power, literally, I start seeing victory in my life. That is legitimate. That's called sanctification. That is an expectation of our life. That is to the credit of God. That is not to our credit. When When we experience that, it is totally God's Holy Spirit supplying the power to make progress in holiness. Let me finish Piper's quote with the following. About verse 4, he says, They don't, they, these proud, religious, hypocritical leaders of Israel, they don't lift a finger to show the unrepentant sinner how Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light because they do not experience it as easy and light. He writes, The moral duty they strive to fulfill is kept heavy so that there can be a sense of merit and boastfulness in the achievement. That's the way the legalistic teachers and preachers, and by the way, when we think of Pharisees, we use Pharisees almost synonymously with legalists. You know what I find? Legalistic teachers and preachers hate grace teaching and preaching. They despise it. By the way, the world will listen to grace teaching and preaching, but legalistic teachers and preachers hate grace preaching because it really takes the strut out of their religion. They just hate it. The way you're teaching, God saves us from our sin and God gets all the credit. We need to try harder. I preach to my people, try harder. Yeah, you keep telling them try harder and we're going to keep preaching trust more. You start trusting more. It ain't about trying hard. It's about trusting more, learning what is available to us. Number three. So Israel's leaders are not only hypocritical and they're loveless. They don't care. It's nothing for them to add more rules and regulations. They're not doing it in their private life. They have no love for their, their followers. But number three is verses five to seven. Israel's leaders were glory seekers. 
Israel's leaders were glory seekers. Notice verse 5. We just need to read through these one more time. Verse 5. So they're glory seekers. Verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They're public performers. These religious leaders were public performers. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They love all of these things. So they are public performers. So here's the thing about proud, religious, hypocritical leaders. They will do things that appear to serve God, and they will do things that Help other people. They really will. Here's the problem. They'll almost always make sure that other people know what they've done. It kind of goes three ways. They spring into action when people get around. They weren't doing anything for the Lord or for others. There's a group of people. Suddenly they get busy. Apparently serving God. The other thing is they're going to do something, but if they'll wait a little while longer, there'll be someone that'll see it. So I'm going to wait until someone can see it. Or... If they must go ahead and do it and no one's there to see it, it just always seems to accidentally come out in their speech. Have you ever known someone that you, without their knowing, find out, found out that they did something that was a good, righteous deed, and you thought to yourself, I'll bet it comes out in their speech before long, and lo and behold, they tell it. They can't, just can't keep it to themselves. I want to ask you this morning, so up now when we're doing all this teaching, let me take a moment. Ask yourself, what is the last thing, what are some things that you do in your life that to the best of your ability, you keep it totally anonymous? That would come under the qualification of a good deed, a service for God, or something that benefits other people. It may be as simple as you are praying for someone. And by the way, it's very encouraging when you let someone know they are praying. But maybe you just, like, I, you've been praying for someone, or you secretly do something for them, and no one else knows it. What is that in your life? Can you think of anything? If you do, shh, don't say it. Don't say it. God sees it. Now, I want you to take a note that I think is pretty important. Why do we do this? By the way, notice what I just said. Why do we do this? We're all guilty from time to time. When we do good things, we want people to know it. Why is that? Write this down. Because hypocrites, I really think it's a matter of faith. I think it's a matter of faith. Because hypocrites do not truly believe that God is, and that God sees, and that God will reward. Therefore, because they don't think, I mean, they don't live under this awareness. If you ask them, yes, theologically, they would say, yes, God sees and God rewards. But in their day-to-day, they forget, or they don't actually in the daily life believe this. They don't think God sees and God will reward. Therefore, that's why they care a whole lot more about what other people think. I have to make sure that others know that I'm doing this. Guys, it really is a matter of faith. And I'm, I'm talking to us. We, we're not just here blistering the Pharisees this morning. We need to ask ourselves, when we do good deeds, what is our motive? What is our attitude? What's our response? If we're not careful, a lack of faith will cause us to seek instant recognition, verbal recognition, visible appreciation by a human being as though we don't think. I'm, just, I'm not willing to wait on God to see it and reward it later. 
I need someone to know it, and so I'm going to make sure that they see it. Careful when we do that. Don't let that happen in us. It's in us. Let's keep that confessed and beat down in the power of the Spirit. Hold your spot in chapter 23. I think the only time that I'm going to have you look anywhere else is back in chapter 6. Because as I was reading this this week, I couldn't help but think about chapter 6. Notice verse 1. So you got your Bible. You're in Matthew. Just hop back a few chapters to the beginning. We were there just, just a couple of years ago. We were back in chapter 6. Notice verse 1. Watch what verse 1 says. Don't you notice the first word, beware. You see that? It's a strong word. It means watch out. Hey, look out. It's like exclamation point. Watch out! Like what? You getting ready to do something good? Yeah? There's danger. Where? Verse 1, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. The next little phrase is key. In order to be seen by them. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Why is this so important? For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He's implying you're getting ready to lose. The Father in heaven is going to reward this. But if you do these things, you practice your righteousness in order to be seen, you're going to lose your reward that you would have had. So that implies it is okay to do some things knowing that God's going to reward it. Jesus gives that as a motivation. That is a legitimate. It's not the highest, but it is one motivation to do good things. You're going to blow it and you're going to lose it. If in your heart you're doing this to make sure that someone sees it and recognizes it. Don't lose it. And then he goes on and talks about ways to keep from losing it. I'll not have you turn there. Well, actually, it won't be on the screen. I lied. We're going to go back. Flip back. You're in chapter 6. Look at chapter 5. Look at chapter 5. Same sermon. Jesus is still talking. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now, here's where I was heading to watch verse 16 in the same way let your light shine before others now what that's contradicting chapter 6 verse 1 seems like but it's not in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven so what is the balance between what Jesus is scolding the Pharisees about what Jesus teaches in chapter 6 and then what he talks about in chapter 5 verse 16 there's a city. You can't hide a city on a hill. Here, here's, I think, how we, they meld together in the balance. A godly life cannot be hidden. A godly, righteous life cannot be hidden. What that means is that someone who truly lives a godly life for Christ, other people are going to see them doing righteous deeds. They're not going to see all their righteous deeds. Jeff, what's your point? For people to see your righteous deeds as you're living a righteous life for the right motivation, for them to see it is not sinful. That does not take away your reward, right? You, you live for the Lord, it's going to come out. What Jesus is preaching against is doing these things in order to be seen. That they're seen is not always your fault. Somebody may discover what you have done or what you are doing. And that again, that does not take the reward and does not automatically make it simple. But God sees our heart, and if we're doing it in order to be seen, then it is sinful. Chapter 6, we'll not look there, but in Matthew 6, Jesus singles out three 
practical ways, acts of righteousness that hypocrites really love to especially be seen doing these things. Hey, without looking, do y'all remember what they were? There are three activities. Jesus says, be careful. Danger is near. When you do these three things, you're going to want someone to know that you've done them. Giving, praying, and fasting. Write those down. Charitable giving, praying, and fasting. Be careful when you do that. Danger is very near. Everyone here who's saved has a new nature in Christ, but you still battle an old nature. Our old nature in all of us, we have pride. All of us have an old prideful nature. And if you're thinking, well, Jeff, I don't. Okay. Okay. You're strong in that area then by your own mouth. We all struggle with pride. Hey, guys, listen to to get practical for a second. Jesus is right in Matthew 6. Whenever we give to someone that's in need or give to the Lord or whenever we pray or whenever we fast, these are things in the whole tone of of chapter 6. The Lord assumes we're going to do these things. And when we do them, the old prideful nature wants something in return. If I'm going to give up my money for them... Well, I need something in place of the money. If I'm going to give my time in prayer to God, well, then I need something to go in the place of the time that I lost. If I'm giving up food intentionally as a spiritual discipline, then I need to, what is it that our old nature wants in place of that money and that time and that food? It's like, well, I should at least get some prestige and some glory. And so I want to make sure that people know. And I can't re-preach the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus said, when you give... Be it to the Lord or you give to the needy. Don't sound a trumpet. Don't make an announcement. Don't make an announcement. Don't tell everybody what you've done. Don't do it. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand does. That tells me. Don't even keep account in your own head how generous you are being. I'm pretty amazing. If if I'm keeping account in my head correctly, I've given X amount of thousands of dollars by this point. Wonder how I'll finish the year. Hey, you let Renee send you a statement in January and you find out what you did. Don't you be worrying and keeping a a tab like, man, look how generous I am. When you pray, the Lord says, literally keep private prayer private. Close the door. Someone may see you pray in private, but you don't put yourself in a position where you are trying to be seen praying in private. Hey, by the way, there is a time for public prayer. And sometimes in public prayer, it is really easy to stop praying to God and start making speeches for other people. Don't let yourself do that. It's corporate prayer. Corporate prayer is is a great thing. Make sure when we're in corporate prayer that we are really talking to God. And in private prayer that we're keeping private prayer private. And when you fast, don't tell people that you're fasting. Wash your face, anoint your face, and don't go around all gloomy like the Pharisees did. They wanted people to know, oh, I'm fasting, I've been fasting for this long. Stop it, you've lost your reward. And that would apply to any other spiritual discipline. Quickly, back to chapter 23. Let's go there. Chapter 23, verse 5 again. I need to hit one more thing there because we have these two terms. So remember our point, they're glory seekers. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. 
Here's one of the ways. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. What's this about? Phylacteries, guys, were leather boxes. I don't know how big. Leather boxes that were attached to the forehead and the left forearm of Jews based off of Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 that said that you shall keep my word, this word, and the Shema, you're going to keep this between the frontlets of your eyes and on your hand. You're going to keep it as a sign on your hand. And so some Jews took this literally. They had little bitty scrolls of Scripture that they had like four texts of Scripture, and they would write it out on these little mini scrolls, and they would put them in leather boxes and attach it between their eyes and on their left hand, taking literal what Deuteronomy 6 and 11 said. Some say it wasn't supposed to be taken literal. It, what it meant was you keep the law of God so much so that it is, the law is affecting your very thoughts and the law is affecting your actions. But they took it literal. And by the way, perhaps it was meant to be literal. But the bottom line is, the problem was, they liked to make their phylacteries really big. And they didn't put the, the phylactery on the arm that had the, the leather box. They didn't put it under their sleeve. They'd wear it on the outside of the sleeve. Again, really, really big. Tassels. Jesus had these tassels on his robe. They were to put tassels at the four corners. I don't even know what that means. The four corners of their robe. And when they would see these tassels, it was to remind them, keep the law of God. Well, the Pharisees made their phylacteries and the straps really, really big, and they would make their... And listen, guys, y'all, I love the Word of God. Don't you? Could you just imagine if I went around preaching like this all the time? I was that preacher, right? You need to... Constantly everywhere, I go to the back of the service. Good to have you this morning, praise God. You know, man, that guy is really holy. Look how big... Did you see the Bible that guy preaches from? I mean, it, guys, if I were to preach from this... By the way, my eyesight may have me preaching from this... As it continues to you, I'd get a great forearm workout. But if my motive was to make you think how great he is, because, man, he's got such a big Bible. He really believes in it. He, believe, he believes in the Bible more than any of the other preachers in the whole county because look how big a Bible. He, I'm not making light of the Scripture. I'm using this to illustrate how silly some of the things that they would do. If their phylacteries are bigger than other people, then they must be holier. If their tassels are longer, they must be holier. Now verse 6, quickly. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. A psychologist could no doubt have a field day on verse 6. Seating really is important to some people. Seating is really important to some people. Hey guys, there are some folks that will go into a room, a meeting, and it's so part of them, subconsciously, they choose a certain seat because it's like the most authoritative seat in the room. Some, it isn't subconscious, it's conscious. What he's talking about is that they loved the prominent seat so much that they would even subconsciously or consciously, when they enter a room, they would seek out the most prominent spot. Now listen, they're not looking for the most prominent spot to see. I'm not talking about, ladies, the women's conference with the famous speaker at the big arena and its general admission. And they open the doors. And you better look out for those women that flat run over you because they want to get up there where they can see really well. I'm not talking about that. 
I'm not talking about the concert again, general admission and man the clothes. Whoever gets there first gets to put their stuff down. I'm not talking about to go see. I'm talking about to be seen. In the synagogues, apparently, they would have these seats that would face a direction and have a few seats that face back toward the audience. And the scribes and the Pharisees love those seats that face back to the audience. They love that. They sought for the prominent position. Is that already in there? I think that note. Let's have that next note. Was that a note? Oh, maybe not. Never mind. It wasn't. I hope I'm not out of line. I'm going to just share this, and I'm going to move on to verse 7 quickly. I hope I'm not out of line. Uh, I'm probably judgmental. A couple of years ago, I forget why I did it, but I went online and I punched in something. Maybe someone told me. I don't forget. Maybe it's just looking up some folks that I maybe used to have cross paths with. I forget what it was. It wasn't an official church service. It was, it was kind of outside and kind of inside. That's the only hint I'll give. And I was watching the video of this service and some people were singing and there was a pew, like long pew behind. And bless his heart, there was a fella sitting here that I'm 99% sure was the song leader. But as a couple came and was singing a duet at the podium, I couldn't help but notice, and I wasn't trying, I couldn't help but notice, he got blocked out for a second. And all of a sudden, you see his head come around. It's as though he knows where the cameras are mounted, and no joke. That joker slid over two feet to get back in the frame. That's the way the Pharisees were. Where can people see me the best? And that's where they would sit. They loved the prominent position. Verse number seven. And greetings in the marketplace. They love being in public and they love the whispers that turn into chatter. And somebody finally has the courage and they ask, aren't you? They love... The photo ops, can I get a picture with you? Can I have your autograph? Would you sign my Bible? Well, certainly. Come right here. They love that. They love being called rabbi, according to verse number seven. What is the problem? If you're taking notes, write this down. The problem was not that they are recognized. The problem is not that they're recognized and greeted respectfully or kindly. That is not the problem. Guys, the problem is that they loved it. That's the problem. They loved these greetings. In the, they loved the chief seats in the synagogue and the best seats at the banquets. They loved it. They crave feeling like a celebrity, like a real religious dignitary. They love that whole scene. And God hates pride. And this is where Israel's leader. Guys, this is in all of us. What we're describing here, this pride is in all of us. You would expect it would be less among religious leaders, but unfortunately, it's often worse among religious leaders. And God hates it. He hates hypocrisy. He hates pride. And now that brings us down to the last five verses, but the final point, and it's different than the others. So if you're taking notes, write this down. True believers, true leaders, let me say it correctly, True leaders are humble servants. True leaders. That phrase, humble servants, is really the opposite of the first three points. Humble leaders are not hypocritical. Humble leaders are not loveless. They're going to humbly help people. And then humble leaders who are about humble servant, being a humble servant, they're not out for the glory. 
And this is what we're called to do. Now, I'm not going to get lost in verses 8 through 10, but let me read it. Here we go. But you are not to be called rabbi. They love being called rabbi. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. I'm going to treat these three together, okay? We're going to treat these three three together rather than drill down in each one. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. So I'm going to give my opinion. I'm going to make this really, really clear. I'm about to say my opinion. This could be wrong. Could absolutely be wrong. I think what is, more than anything, I think what's happening in the prohibitions in verses 8 through 10 is that this seems to be less, you with me? Less about using these words as descriptive nouns. I think it is much more about not using these words as exalting titles. Let me say it again. I think it is less a prohibition against using these words as descriptive nouns. And what do you do? I'm an instructor. Oh, I almost said it. <laughs> you about got me breaking Matthew 23. Oh, you're an instructor. You said it. I didn't. What do you do? I'm a teacher. I, I talk to the kids over at the public school. Oh, so you're a t- oh, no, don't say it. Matthew 23, please. I don't want It's just a descriptive word. I think what we're really being prohibited to do here is using these titles to exalt people and to exalt ourselves. Seating really matters to some people and titles really matter to some people. They love it. They had their titles in this day. Rabbi, Father, Instructor, master, teacher, the idea, being there. Those were their words. I think all through Christianity, each generation has its words. I think maybe we need to learn something here this morning so we have a good Bible attitude moving forward. So let's let this affect us. We're going to get practical for a few moments. There are some religious leaders who insist on being called by titles. Titles like pastor, pastors, pastor so and so, pastor, I'm, I'm senior pastor so and so, oh, or preacher so and so, preacher so and so, and they really get upset if you don't call them by the name. Uh, here's doctor so and so, doctor, doctor so and so. That group over there gave him honorary doctorate, or they earned a doctorate by the books, and you will address him as doctor so and so. Really? What about Matthew twenty three? Professor so-and-so. And we really, we love our titles. I'm going to borrow from MacArthur here if you'll listen carefully. This will take a moment. I'll, I'll give you, I want you to hear the front part first. This is important. MacArthur writes, human teachers who faithfully proclaim and interpret God's word are to be appreciated, loved, and highly esteemed by those they serve. Did you catch what he just said? I agree with that. That's, that's the attitude I was taught. That's the attitude I, I hopefully had toward my pastors. Human teachers who faithfully proclaim. I have one, two main pastors who especially faithfully proclaimed and interpreted God's word. And so I have appreciation, love, and highly esteemed them since they serve me. 
Where's that found in the Bible? If you want out to the side, write 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Hebrews 13, 7 and 14, maybe. Anyway, twice in Hebrews 7. Let me just read real quickly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Let me find 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse number 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And again, Hebrews 13 says, Remember those who have the rule over you and obey those that have the rule over you. So now let me go back to the quote. You ready? He writes, Human teachers who faithfully proclaim and interpret God's word are to be appreciated, loved, and highly esteemed by those they serve. But they are not to seek honor, much less demand it or glory in it. They, here's your note, they need to remember that they are neither the source of truth, which is God's word, nor the illumination of truth, which is God's spirit. That's a great quote. That's not scripture. That's not even close to scripture. That's a great quote that anyone who ever teaches and preaches the word of God needs to remember. Human teachers need to remember, hey, you're not the source of truth. God's word is the source of truth. Right, right, right. God's word is the source of truth, but I make it really understandable for the people. No, you don't. You don't do squat. People only understand the word of God when God reveals it to 40 men in old time, has them write it down in an inspired fashion where it's the errorless, trustworthy, authoritative word of God. It's collected and preserved and given to you in your own language. You're taught how to read. The Holy Spirit in you enlightens the page, gives you some truth that is actually his, enables you and empowers you by the power of the Holy Spirit to teach it in a way. And then somehow while it's in the air and in the ears, ears then he has to make them now understand and then he has to cause it to come out in their life. You're just a conduit. You're just a tool along the way. You're not the source of enlightenment. You're not the source of truth. God's spirit and God's word is. That's why he says, concludes, no man's calling, however unique, justifies his being given a title intended to portray him as being spiritually superior. So guys, I'm going to hit a couple of points and I'm hitting verse 11 very quickly and I'm going to hit verse 12 and we'll be done. What should your attitude be to me or to Mike or to Brandon, your Sunday school teacher, the next pastor, whoever that may be, the person that you pay money to go see at a conference, person you listen to? What should be your attitude? Your attitude toward me and us should be that we are brothers and sisters in Christ who each have gifts from the Holy Spirit that are to be used to serve each other. And insofar as we are obedient, we are grateful. We use terms like brother and sister. Not as an elevated, exalted term. Brother, so and so. We use brother to show family affection and to show equality. You don't call them. It isn't like, what do you do? 
teacher, but I can't use the word. Oh, you're a teacher. Just don't go around. Teach, you'll address me as teacher so-and-so. You'll address me as preacher so-and-so. Yeah, get off your high horse. You're just a conduit. You're just a tool when God chooses to use us. Very quickly on verse 9, I feel like I need to hit it because it can be a little bit confusing. Personally, I'm going to give my opinion again. I'm back in Matthew 23. My opinion on verse 9 lines up with what Wearsby writes. Verse 9 says, Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Wearsby writes, quote, It is not wrong to call one's biological father by that name, but it is wrong to use it when addressing a spiritual leader. Father. Wait, what about Paul? Didn't Paul do this? He did in his letters. But Wiersbe is correct saying Paul referred to himself as a spiritual father because he had begotten people through the gospel. But he did not ask them to use that name when addressing him. He's just, matter of fact, I won these people to the Lord. Spiritually on the human level, I was used by God to give them the gospel and lead them to Christ. But he never said, you must call me Father Paul. I'm going to throw this. I'm hitting verse 11 in a very brief way. What religious group uses this term all the time? The Roman Catholic Church. I, am, I, I should have looked it up. I didn't take the time. I have no idea how they get around verse 9. Calling their people Father so-and-so. It is literally directly disobeying a clear command in Matthew 23. Y'all not do it. I think the name Pope itself means Father. Breaking the scriptures. Disobeying Christ. Now very quickly, look at verse 11. I hinted as I read it. Verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Is this a command? Hey, you're the greatest. Who's the greatest? Get all the greatest ones together. You guys need to be servants. Guys, this is not a command. This is a clue. Please hear me what I'm about to say. I know it's 1208. I want you to hear this. This is a clue. It's as though the Lord is saying, you want to know who the greatest among you is? Grace, if you all just tell you this, come about five or six weeks in a row, come for life group, come for church on Sunday, and come back on Wednesday. Do it about five or six weeks in a row, and you can figure out who the greatest among us is. Hint, seriously, it's not the guy talking right now. He is not the greatest person here. You say, then who is? I can name their names, but I wouldn't want to cause problems in their soul and spirit. It's some of the people working right down here. I could say her name right now. She's going to have a lot more crowns than I'm going to have unless I catch up with her in service. There are other people. They're all over this ministry. I am literally not on the top row there. I need to work toward that. And not in the flesh, but by allowing the Holy Spirit who has gifted us, we need to use our gifts and talents. That's what he's saying. You want to know who the greatest are? Just look around and see who's serving. Well, Jeff, I have a lot of talent and I have a lot of possessions. Okay, but if you refuse to serve the body, you are really far from being great. And you will care when you stand before Christ. You will care. And then lastly is verse 12. So hear this fresh and new. Y'all hear this. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I said before, this is fearful and exciting. Your next to the last note is this. Jesus promises in verse 12 that whatever position we take in this life, he will invert that position in the next life. And notice that it is passive voice. 
Guys, what this means is the person who has just talked about the Pharisees, the person who goes through life actively, actively exalting themselves, what will they have to do to be humbled? They will do nothing. God will humble them. Please catch that. If you go through life actively exalting yourself, God will. It may take time, and it'll be in, in His time and His way. God will humble those who actively exalt themselves. But, flip the coin. Those who actively humble themselves, God will exalt them. If that does not happen, if those two things do not happen, the Bible is a, is a lie. Jesus is a liar. That can't happen. So if I'm hearing this, and if I'm you, and I am me, what we ought to be thinking is, since this is going to happen, I need to let this affect my life. I need to intentionally and purposely humble myself and not exalt myself, because if I'll do that, then He will exalt. Because if I exalt myself, He's going to humble me, and I don't want God to humble me. This is all through the Scripture. It's in Peter, it's in James, it's in the book of Proverbs. You exalt yourself and God opposes the proud. You don't want God opposing you. He can humble any of us. So you humble yourself and then let Him do the exalting. And I have one last thought. That's about all my voice will let me do today, right? Whoever, look at the middle, whoever humbles himself... Guys, here's my closing thought. I want you to not have the wrong view of what that means. If you're taking notes, write the following. Whoever humbles himself, that phrase, humbles himself, does not just mean mental victory over our inner desire for glory. Don't think, okay, I believe, verse 12, I want to experience God's exaltation and not my own. So I need to start in my mind becoming more and more humble and fight my inner pride. That is true, but that's not what verse 12 is talking about. If I can prove it this way, verse 11 and 12 go together. Boy, I skipped a note, didn't I? I skipped an important note. It had to do with verse 11. I'm already past it, but I remember it. Did you already write it? it? Was it on the screen? Let's go back there. Let's go back there. Jesus connects three things. He often connects three things. Humility, service, and greatness. This is true. This is multiple times. It's in chapter 18. It's in chapter 20. Over and over, Jesus connects humility, service, greatness. Who's the great ones? Those who serve. Who are the ones that serve? It should be those who are humble. Humility leads to service, leads to greatness. Jesus connects these. Now, after that, let's go to the last one. As soon as you write that, this will be up there waiting for you. This humbling ourselves is not just getting mental victory over our inner selfish desire for glory. What this is talking about is actually taking the low position of service. It's not enough to say, I'm going to work on my inner humility and I'm, the Lord will exalt me. What he's talking about, he will exalt those who intentionally, actually take the low position and serve. Not all servers are humble. So Jeff, anybody that's serving is automatically, no, no, no. There are people that are serving and they're doing it. We saw that in verse 5. They're doing it to be seen. 
Not all servers are humble, but all humble people serve. Not all servers are humble, all humble people serve. And the attitude is, nothing is beneath them. Nothing's too dirty. They're, the humble, the ones who are going to be exalted, the ones who, what Jesus is saying, listen, Gracefully, when it really matters and when you're going to really care, when you don't want to be at the end of the line, you want to be at the front of the line when exaltation takes place, then don't look at any jobs as that's beneath me. I don't do that. Those who humbly say, I'll do whatever is needed as the Lord leads me. I will do that. I will obey that. That's the ones who are going to be exalted. And I praise the Lord for those that we have here. So I ask you this. I ask all of you the same question that I started and finished with Wednesday night. How? You ready? Exactly how and how often do you use your body to serve the body of Christ? How do you do it? By the way, I know, I know where some minds just went. Well, I serve my family. Lost people serve their family. Lost people love their family. I do for my family. That's great. Be faithful to your family. I mean it, guys. Really, you're going to care, so I'm pleading with you. Ask and answer. How do I serve the body? How often do I serve the body? And according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, which we've been learning about on Wednesday nights with Chip Ingram, it's about the body. How do I specifically use my body to minister to the people of God? And if you're coming up with not a lot of answers you need to start praying, Lord, help me to have more humility. And Lord, help me to embrace service because I want you to exalt me. I don't want to have this attitude, I'm too good to do that. And then be ready to walk through the doors of service as they present themselves. Heads bowed, eyes closed this morning. Just before we pray, I have six questions I want to ask you, and then we'll pray. Number one. Do you personally have any areas, and you may, nothing may come to your mind, but if the Holy Spirit puts something on your heart, then you just deal with Him. Do you have anything in your life, any area where you are guilty of being like the scribes and Pharisees in that you say one thing, but you do another? You say something's important, but you don't live like it's important. Is there anything in your life like that? Secondly, could it be said of you that you help other people follow God actively? You help other people follow God. Or have you been guilty of burdening people of God with your man-made expectations of what life should be lived like do you say and not do do you help others follow God or do you burden them down number three don't answer out loud just between you and the Lord do you need to confess a good deed that has been done be it giving praying fasting serving in any way a good deed that has been done, but was done for self-glory. Confess that to the Lord. And I'm going to ask all of us, check our hearts this morning. 
do we crave? Do we crave public recognition and praise of men? That is sin. God hates that pride. Confess it. Don't be like the glory-seeking scribes and Pharisees. People may find out what you do, and they may praise you for it, and that will not be to your detriment. Just don't do it for that purpose. Last two questions are these. Is your life marked by the sign, the dead giveaway sign of humility? Is your life marked by the sign of humility? Humble people serve other people. Humble people always serve. If they are at all able, they use their body and their resources to serve other people. And then lastly, do you really think verse 12 is going to happen or not? If anyone exalts himself, he'll be humbled. But if anyone humbles himself, he will be exalted. Do you really believe that? If that's true, how should we live? Would you stand with me this morning? Let's close in prayer. Father, Father, I realize this is kind of a a negative tone message. Not the easiest to listen to. So Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit did explain and illuminate truth and Lord those areas where opinion was offered if that's not the truth and Lord just let that fall by the wayside but if that should affect our thoughts and how we live and if that was the right approach and interpretation of your word I pray Lord that we would put that in as well Father, I pray that we would not be glory seekers, that we would not be hypocrites, and that we would not be loveless, but Lord, that we would have a whole church, literally all of our regular attenders, regularly using their body and their spiritual gifts to serve the body, to serve the lost in our community. May we be found faithful. May we humble ourselves for service. And let you determine what greatness really looks like. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.